Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Uh, Billy Joel, so much wisdom, so much wisdom from Billy Joel. All right, this is a show about masks. I should say, I mean, obviously I'm not wearing a mask right now, doing a radio show and all, but I do own uh, now a, a pandemic mask, mask sewed for me by a friend who is, I think not by coincidence, a Korean-American woman uh, from Korea originally. Uh, and it's a beautiful mask that, I sound like Trump, it's a beautiful mask. <laughs> It's the best mask, uh, but it's uh, got kind of a Spider-Man pattern on it and stuff like that. So I like it. And it's it's me, you know. So we're going to talk about masks, about the semiotics and demographics and politics of masks. We're excited to begin with Ryan Lizza, uh, chief Washington correspondent for Politico, a senior political analyst at CNN. He is writing a book about 2020 with Olivia Nuzzi. So already they lead the league in Z's. Uh, and he has been writing about masks, the politics of masks <laughs> for Politico. Uh, and he joins us now. Hi, Ryan. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, very excited to have you. So, you know, it really has become the case now, uh, certainly in a place I'm sitting here in Connecticut, if I'm in a store or some other place like that and and everybody's wearing masks, the help is wearing masks, most of the customers are wearing masks, uh, and there's one guy there who's shopping who's not wearing a mask, you could pretty well tell how he voted in the 2016 election. I think that's sort of the case that you're making, and there are some demographics that back that up, right? Yeah, not hearing Ryan back. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you. I apologize. Oh, okay. Are you, are you hearing me? I am hearing you. Yes. This is the world we live in right now. So, yeah, yeah I was I saying. Apologize. Did, I, yeah. Did you hear, <laughs> did you hear my you'll, question? You'll, yeah. You, you'll, you'll, you'll laugh because my, my quarantine radio office right now is the car in front of my house because, <laughs> as you can imagine, sometimes during the day, if you've got too many people there, it can be a little crazy and there's not actually a quiet spot to do a radio interview. So that may explain our, our technical difficulties. Yeah. Um, so did, did you hear my question? I heard, I heard yeah. most of the wind up there, but just yeah, yeah I, I heard what you were saying, and then I, but I think I just missed the final, uh, the final, the final que actual question. Well, the question would be: I mean, there, there. I, I was sort of, kind of heuristically saying, if you see a guy, the one guy in the store without a mask, probably voted for Trump in the twenty sixteen election. I mean, that's just my best guess or my supposition based on gut. But there actually are some numbers to back this up and some reasons to think that might be the case. So maybe give us a few of those. 
Oh man, I'm so sorry. The, the reasons for for what for oh, what exactly? Oh, so why you <laughs> the reasons for why you would be able to make a political guess about somebody who's not wearing a mask? Ah, gotcha. Sorry about that. Well, it has become as the pandemic has sort of been put through the filter of our polarized politics. Um, I, I think the mask has become the symbol of um, uh, the resistance to some of the, 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 the policies. So lack of wearing a mask among a certain coterie of people on the right is a sign that maybe you're a little skeptical of, of the efforts to contain the coronavirus. Uh, maybe you believe that um, the state actually doesn't have the the right to uh enforce such a thing right and so it's become you know what what should just be a simple um health um uh, uh you know guidance from health officials has become a much more politicized symbol where um you know in the neighborhood i live in in, in dc uh you know you 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 uh you, you certainly get some uh some some strange looks made and certainly you'd probably be thrown out of the store if you weren't wearing a mask where in other places uh as we've seen some of the protests that have popped up um not wearing a mask is a is a sign that uh you're you know you're skeptical of this whole thing and a, and a person of the right and i think that that all of those that uh symbolism has become more prevalent as the pandemic has, uh, has has moved along here. There are other things that have become politicized, but the mask is sort of the, the ultimate, ultimate symbol. Right, because it's on your face and people can see it. So, Ryan, we're going to try to sharpen up your connection a little bit. If you see, exactly. your, phone, if you see your phone ring, uh, answer it. Uh, we'll uh, see what we can do here. And, and so while that's happening, let me just say that there now are there actually is some polling on this now. Uh, Gallup has now polled uh, on demographic subgroups wearing masks uh, and, and their comfort level with wearing masks. Uh, overall, U.S. adults, 36 or 36 to 32 are in favor of wearing mask or are wearing mask uh, either always or some always or sometimes I guess okay so um, and, and as I look at the um, bar graphs here from Gallup it's kind of interesting how well they track on to voting patterns in the 2016 election so uh, the more education a person has, the more likely that person is either to sometimes or always uh, being wearing a mask these days. So if you have postgraduate education, uh, it's uh, 40% uh, always in public, 35% sometimes in public. That's a very high number, same, roughly the same number for college graduates. So you really, you could pretty easily map those numbers uh, onto the numbers from the 2016 election, and you'd have, um, you know, have kind of a similar thing. People who were likely to vote for Trump in the 2016 election kind of fit the demographic profile. I would add that uh, similarly, women are more likely to sometimes or always wear a mask in public, uh, more so than men. In fact, it's a pretty big spread in Gallup. 44% of women always, uh, only 29% of men always. And then it evens up a little bit in the sometimes where I'm asking public category. So, um, so Ryan, welcome back. I think you might be on a different connection now. 
Yeah, I think it's better now. I apologize for that. No problem. I just as long as you can hear me, that's good. Uh, yeah, Cat, uh, if you can boost him up a little bit. Um, so, I mean, th- there are some reasons for this. We could start with the big orange reason that sits at the top of all this, which is that uh, not only has the guidance from the federal government about masks kind of flip-flopped a, a time or two. I mean, even at the level of the CDC, they haven't been always be, been clear about it. So there's there's reasons why people might have ambivalence about wearing a mask. But the president of the United States does not wear a mask, says he's not going to wear a mask. That can't be insignificant. Absolutely. I think he sets the tone and on a, on a you know, when a new um, subject enters our politics in a, in a really um, uh, kind of wide way, the way that the pandemic has, and voters don't necessarily use or can't necessarily um, use their pre-existing uh, takes on other issues or ideology to sort of settle on what they should think about it, you know, it's well established in political science literature that they, they look to um, political leaders or um, commentators that they trust, political commentators that they trust on their side to sort of, um, you know, know what to think uh, uh, about it. And, you know, there's interesting, you know, I don't think it had to have gone this way, right? I think just as easily um, Trump could have been a hawk on wearing a mask and obsessed with um, the, you know, kind of his germaphobe side and much more obsessed with the uh, CDC uh, 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 leadership and could have, uh, you know, he could have been the person of the mask, right? I, I don't think that's, uh, there's nothing about Trump that made this obvious that this is the, the thing he would uh, seize on. And so and just as with Republican voters during the Ebola uh, crisis that Obama was, de- was dealing with, they were the most fearful of Ebola and sort of traditional kind of uh, conservative view of, you know, uh, something threatening the country and we need to put, you know, do everything we can to, to defeat it, right? So they could have gone in that direction with this pandemic and, uh, and they didn't, and the reason they didn't just, but back to where we started with your question, is Trump. Trump sent the signal that he had some skepticism uh, about this and has notably refused to be seen in public with a mask. I will say there, we don't have to wear masks at all times. I mean, we shouldn't be silly about mask wearing. Um, you know, there, there are circumstances where wearing a mask uh, is obviously not um, necessary. So I thought, for instance, when, you know, I was at a press conference with Trump the other day in the Rose Garden, it was the first day that everyone at the White House, all the staffers were wearing masks. The journalists were for the first time wearing masks as they asked questions. That was new. Now, Trump was not wearing a mask. Um, Should he have been? Well, he's up at a podium distance from, uh, you know, at least six feet from the closest person. I'm not so sure it's necessary that he wears a mask in, in in that circumstance. And... I think there, you know, we can be a little silly about overemphasizing the, uh, in, in, you know, importance of, uh, of the mask. But there's no doubt that he has signaled uh, skepticism to its, uh, uh, to the benefits of it. 
Right. Although if we wanted to be extreme about the mask, from an epidemiological standpoint, you can make a tremendous argument in, in countries where they've gotten 80 percent or plus um, compliance on masks. They win. They stop the virus. I think Taiwan might be the most uh, prominent example of this. Now, there could be a post hoc proctor hoc fallacy here. It could also be that a country that can get 80% of its populations to wear masks in public all the time is probably also able to get a lot of other public health messaging and compliance out too. But masks kind of do in Asia indicate a, a success, a high success rate for stopping the virus. But it's not just Absolutely. Trump anyway. Let, let me just play this for you, Ryan. It's not just Trump anyway. It, it's obviously the kind of echo chamber of media that um, speaks for Trump and speaks to Trump when he's watching TV, which he does a lot. Kat, let's hear Laura Ingram. Well, by the way, they'll say this whole mask thing is settled science, just like they do with climate change. Of course, it's not. And they know it. Our own experts have gone from masks aren't necessary to masks are essential. You have to wear them when you go jogging in just a few weeks time. Right. So uh, it's not just coming from Trump. It's coming from uh, kind of a network of sources that include President Trump and, and his defenders. Yeah. And there's this, you know, there's this effort. And there is, as you pointed out, there is there was conflicting guidance about the masks. So people, it's understandable that people might be a little confused. I remember early in the pandemic when it was the cool thing on social media to criticize people for wearing masks. And that was coming from a lot of smart liberals I know because they were saying um, that, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything. So there was, you know, there was, this, was, this is all new to all of us. We haven't experienced this. So there's, you know, it takes some time to understand what's, what's sound and what isn't. What I think is unusual, especially in that clip you just played, is there's, there's, a, uh, there's just a built-in bias towards skepticism about all of it from some of the conservative commentators. And there's this, you know, not so much a, an interest in, all right, let's get, the, let's, let's get the full story on mask wearing. It's much more of a let's find any piece uh, of evidence to support uh, my new political position that masks are a, a great infringement on my on my rights. That's where polarization comes into a, an issue like this. So suddenly you have a new political issue where people don't actually have a pre-existing ideological opinion on it, and suddenly one forms, and then everything gets filtered, you know, through that uh, through that lens. It's almost like a, a lab. We've almost had like a laboratory experiment about what how polarization, you know, kind of warps our politics with this pandemic. Yeah, and I would say some of it's predictable. I mean, the particularly the strong Trump constituency. I'm not saying all conservatives. I'm not saying all Republicans. But the core Trump constituency does include kind of a rejection of expertise, kind of a rejection of science, kind of a sense that they don't want people with graduate degrees in fields they can't even name or pronounce telling them what to do in their daily life. But I, I think one of the arguments you're making, too, is, it kicks in also in a very visceral level. And, and, and so when you can start completing some of these basic visceral statements about American life, real men 
dot, dot, dot. So real men don't wear masks and die yuppie scum you there in your mask. It, it starts to become a class thing. It starts to become a somewhat educational attainment based thing. And to a certain degree, and once again, the demographics point to this, it may be kind of a gender thing. Maybe there are guys who really do think that real men don't wear masks. Yeah, you know, there's a good column by uh, in the Times by, oh gosh, I'm forgetting his name right now. Uh, Frank, Frank that, Bruni, maybe? It wasn't Frank, it was uh, something that was just posted yesterday by, um, oh, I'm so sorry that I'm forgetting this, but he actually and, went into a, a great deal of political science about, um, specifically about gender and, um, and you know, um, the, the differences between men and women uh, on, on this issue. And uh, if I forget it, if I remember the name by the end of the uh, by the end of the our time together, I'll, I'll throw it out there. Because it really is worth reading, and had a great deal of, uh, of survey data and political science about this divide. And he, you know, uh, Tom Essel is the, the name of the columnist. And, and one point that Tom made that I do think is is interesting, and sort of piggybacks on what I was saying before, is that this was the the phenomenon of how Republicans decided what to think about this issue was 100% driven by the leader of the party. It was Trump's view on this that sort of won the day, right? You know, you could just have, Trump could have just as easily been pro-mask and you, um, I think almost certainly would have seen uh, the, the right being, you know, wearing MAGA masks and, you know, re-elect Trump 2020 masks. And there are some of those out there. But I think the phenomenon to me that is just fascinating here is how much when a new issue like this crops up, the, the, the power of the president to completely define his party's view of this. Um, that's really unusual. I don't think Obama necessarily had that uh, ability, but, but Trump really does. Um, right. Although I think there are some questions tomorrow. Yeah, I think there's questions about how he validates certain things. And once again, semiotics kicks in. He would probably be more likely to have like Chuck Norris and Tom Selleck standing up there in, in MAGA masks than to have uh, Anthony Fauci and a few other microbiologists. I mean, I think that his base kind of hears that yeah. whistle clearer. But what, but what if Republicans had, what if the main response from Republicans and conservatives had been what it was when Ebola was a threat, where the kind of like, um, you know, threat instinct of, uh, that, that, that sometimes defines uh, the right, if that had been the overriding thing, like, oh my God, there is this terrible uh, virus that could kill us all. We've got to hit this with everything we can. And that was the view when Ebola, when, when there was that, uh, when, when Ebola was, um, threatening um, the United States. And that didn't happen. And I think the difference here is, you know, what Trump's view was. Now, maybe you could argue he took his cues from some other conservative leaders. And, and um, but I guess my, my, my point is it wasn't, it wasn't 100% certain at the start of this um, whether the view was going to be, oh, those pointy-headed liberals with their science and their health expertise, we don't have to listen to them. Or it was going to be, oh, my God, this is a national security threat, you know, just like uh, terrorism or any other national security threat. Conservatives are going to be the uber hawks on that uh, on this issue. And if anyone's not listening, uh, you know, to what the Trump administration is, is putting out, you know, uh, uh, they're idiots. 
that that to me is 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 the interesting part of like how polarized our politics are and how influential Trump himself is to sort of define like what strain of conservatism he's going to pull through uh, pull from and 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 push when a new issue like this comes along. All right, so Ryan Lizza, uh, great to talk to you in your car, on the phone, on Zoom. It doesn't matter. Uh, Chief Washington <laughs> correspondent for Politico, writing a book uh, in twenty twenty about twenty twenty with Olivia Nuzzi coming to a bookstore near you when bookstores actually are open again. We'll take a God break. Willing. <laughs> God willing, we're we're going to stay with this kind of idea of semiotics and particularly the semiotics of fashion. And who better to do that with than Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post critic? Uh, Robin Given. Put on your mask. It might help our prognosis. Put on your mask. Don't stop it So this is fun and exciting. I've been a big fan of Robin Given for a long time, even before the Pulitzer. Fashion critic for the Washington Post. She's the author of The Battle of Versailles, the night American fashion stumbled into the spotlight and made history. She's been writing a lot about masks, because if you're a fashion critic in April and May of 2020, what else are you going to write about? You're going to write about masks. So first of all, Robin Given, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me. So, you know, uh, just to kind of continue with the conversation from the first segment, masks have semiotics. They have symbol symbolic meaning. And, and you know, Ryan Lizza was talking about the political division, but it's it's even more complicated like about that at the level of fashion. And one thing that you are suggesting, I think, is that at least on the fashion front, the battle is over and masks have won. They're going to be around for a while. But say more about that. Yeah, well, when I was writing about it, um, I had the great luck of speaking to a, a religion professor, uh, Liz Bukar, who, you know, sort of encapsulated um, a lot of the thinking or a lot of the questioning about masks. And she essentially said that, you know, if we are wearing a mask because we are afraid, every time we see someone else else in a mask, it's gonna churn up fear. But if we're wearing a mask out of consideration for our community and out of generosity to try and prevent others from being sick, then when we see a mask, our response is going to be, oh, that person is being considerate of me. So I, I thought that was a really interesting uh, way of sort of grappling with a lot of the um, angst that people have about wearing something that for most of them is very unfamiliar. Right. Another word uh, besides consideration that came up in another of your pieces, I think, is the word humility. And there is a way in which the mask does say, I don't think I'm so important that I don't have to wear a mask. Uh, I'm going to follow these guidelines. I'm going to do what I can to make us safe in a communal sense. So there's a little bit of visually casting a little bit of yourself aside. You're covering half of your face uh, and, and you're doing it in a way where the underlying message, uh, I think, is one of humility. But maybe you'd like to comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're really casting yourself as uh, one of many, as part of a community and part of a community effort, as opposed to um, when you're not wearing a mask and you're setting yourself apart and above and separate from those around you. 
And I think also when you are wearing a mask, it says that you are willing to consider um, the needs of other people. And that does require a certain amount of humility because, um, you know, as we're very much beginning to, to learn, a mask worn for any significant amount of time um, is uncomfortable. And as the weather gets warmer, it's more uncomfortable to wear them outside because they can be hot and they can make you sweaty and it's more challenging to breathe in them. So all of those things suggest that um, the decision to wear one really does uh, require a, a kind of humbling. And, and I, significantly, I mean, I, w- I just happened by chance to be in Japan in 2009 during the so-called swine flu uh, pandemic. Uh, and in Asian countries, the adaptation to masks uh, goes much faster. Taiwan, this time around, has done this, inc- did this incredible ramping up of getting enough masks ready and now is doing kind of mask diplomacy where they give huge numbers of masks to other countries. But, but there's a way in which there's a little bit of a east-west divide on this. Uh, people in Asia are, I think, way more comfortable with this idea and, and maybe even fits in a, a little bit more with their philosophy of what, personal space and, and, and maybe humility. Absolutely. I and mean, I think that's one of the reasons why um, the wearing of a mask is so, here in the States, is so bound up in these ideas of uh, individuality and uh, what it means to be American and patriotism and all those things. Because, you know, there is this element of stereotyping and racism that um, we've seen um, directed at Asian Americans. There's this idea that America is this country of bold, strong individualism and how dare someone tell me how to behave or how to dress or, you know, what I should wear. I think all those things get woven together and um, have, in some cases, meant that people have equated wearing a mask as somehow anti-American. There's a, you did a, you did one of your pieces about the recent Senate hearing with the three leading public health experts in the federal government. And so for the first time, we got to see some senators showing up either with or without masks. Um, you know, you and I, I think we saw different things in Tim Kaine. And I think you probably probably got it right. It's his his kerchief, this black and red kerchief that was hiked up onto his nose. To me, it looked very Zapatista and kind of young Daniel Ortega, maybe. Uh, and, and but you saw it correctly, I think, which is if, in fact, we're going to get a certain kind of American to get down with masks, we're going to have to invoke certain kinds of specific icons like maybe cowboys or exciting Jesse James type bank robbers. Uh, you saw maybe a little bit of that in Kane. I saw a little bit of uh, the Wild West in there. I saw a little bit of uh uh, you know, sort of 60s uh, protest in there. But uh, I also saw this idea that, you know, yeah, he's wearing a face covering, uh, but it also had this um, real uh, message that, you know, this is a makeshift face covering, right? You know, he's not fully investing in a wardrobe of masks because he is convinced, you know, this is just temporary. So we can make do. And, and I think that is a message that for a lot of people is very reassuring. 
there is a way in which all kinds of things get racialized. Um, and, you know, as you have suggested and I've suggested, first of all, um, you know, Asian people are much more likely to be comfortable with masks and mask culture. The the main mask, my number one main mask that I have right now is uh, served for me by a, a, a Korean woman who's a friend of mine. Um, and, and obviously Asian people, as you say, are being targeted for discrimination right now. I suppose an Asian person wearing a mask may have like sort of double inciting uh, qualities for a certain kind of hooligan uh, out there. Um, but you've also written about uh, masks and uh, and black men in particular, right? Uh, there's just a, a way in which maybe this is going to be read slightly differently. Yeah, I mean, there have been cases where, um, you know, black men have talked about, um, you know, being uncomfortable walking into public spaces wearing a mask because, um, you know, they are, they have been associated um, obviously, you know, with, with criminals and African-American men um, have, um, you know, had their, their personhood policed. Uh, and this, I think, only, only adds to that, only adds to um, their risk and concern. And, um, you know, there is an, a long history of policing face coverings, whether it's um, you know, with African-American men, whether it's with Asian-Americans, whether it's um, with, um, you know, women, uh, Muslim women uh, who have, uh, who wear uh, face coverings for religious or traditional reasons. Um, there's this sense that a face covering uh, creates, um, uh, it, it, as they say in academia, you know, it others a person and it makes them somehow seem like they're not one of us. And anything that does that to a group that's already, to some degree, marginalized, I, I think is uh, creates a heightened uh, danger. So um, as this uh, crisis broke out and, you know, most of us uh, back in February weren't actually keeping a lot of N95 masks or any other kind of masks in our house, wasn't part of our lives at all, and there weren't enough of them. Um, and the fact that uh, the cloth masks need to be stitched, they often are these three-layer cloth masks. And so you have to ask yourself, who's good at stitching? Who might have a lot of, I don't know, <laughs> fabric sitting around right now? Um, so maybe you could just say a little bit about how the fashion industry, uh, haute couture in particular, uh, rose to this challenge. The fashion industry has moved faster than it's ever moved before. Um, it started out uh, stitching up masks for first responders, and then it very quickly uh, started stitching them up for you know civilians. And those masks have gone from basic, um, you know, fabric that was left over, to all the way to designs that are brocade and velvet and embroidered and sparkly. I mean, they're offering up an entire wardrobe of masks for every possible situation. Right. And so there's, you know, there's been sort of two currents that I detect in this, mostly based on my reading of Robin Given, but one of them is, you know, a general uh, and, and genuine public spiritedness. You wrote about the designer Soriano, uh, but but in general, this kind of sense, well, well, yeah, we'll help, we'll pitch in, uh, we'll we can sew, we've got fabric. I mean, so there's there's that piece of it, 
Uh, and maybe you can say a little bit about that in just a second. And then there's another part of it that looks a little bit more to me like to use the overused uh, Rahm Emanuel line, never let a crisis go to waste. I mean, Disney is putting out four packs uh, of masks with the character, Disney characters on it. I mean, there's a little of both, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I mean, there's uh, there's the, the charitable aspect of it, uh, which I think is coming from a very good place uh, with designers creating them and donating them to hospitals uh, and, and to people who need them, but you know, don't have access to them. And then there's this whole other element of people who are uh, making them and selling them. But, you know, we're still in a place where um, no one has really sort of stepped beyond uh, what has been deemed acceptable um, and done sort of really overpriced masks. Most of them are the cost of materials and labor uh, a lot of them are, you know, buy one, we'll donate one. Um, and, and I honestly think that if the industry, if the fashion industry can make them more appealing and make people less uh, hesitant to wear them, then the fashion industry is doing a good thing. So as we get ready to, to wrap up here, first of all, I have had a uh ambition to get you on the show for a really long time so i'm really happy that you're here but so now let's imagine that i see you on the red carpet uh, still during the mask era who are you wearing robin given <laughs> well i joked that when i was working on the story and i went deep down the rabbit hole of masks i emerged uh having ordered one with silver sparkles on it so Mm, not going to mention any designers, but uh, but you've got a look you're going for anyway. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, if you ever run into me, I'll be the guy with the Spider-Man pattern on his mask. Sounds um, good. All right. Robin Given for the Washington Post. We are so thrilled to have you, uh, and I hope you'll come back. Oh, you know, I should say that earlier today, Mike Pesca pointed out that we've now done an entire show about sweatpants about two weeks ago, and now an entire show about masks. He says, you got to do something about the torso. And so we'll work on that. But Robin Given. <laughs> the region in between. Yes, that the vast demilitarized zone there. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to tell you a story at the end here. This story does not have anything to do with the coronavirus. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with pandemics. It doesn't even really exactly take place in the present, although, yeah, basically it does. But it also involves uh, ancient papyri and mummies and biblical scripture. And so get ready. All right, it's time to say a few words of thanks here. Uh, thanks to Kat Pastor. She is there in the studio. Uh, she is keeping us all connected, making everything work, and it also makes it possible uh, for the rest of us to work from home. So uh, she is one of the big heroes of Connecticut public broadcasting these days. Uh, and to Betsy Kaplan, senior producer on the Colin McEnroe Show uh, and the producer of this particular episode on masks. Tomorrow, we actually will not be on the air because the All-American Access Aardvark Show is going to be on. That's actually not the name of it, but I can't ever remember the actual name of it. 
It does involve aardvarks in some way, though. And then we're going to be back on Friday. My friend David Edelstein, the critic, uh, film critic for New York Magazine and so many other prestigious venues, and I, we're just going to have kind of a long-form conversation, and not just about movies either, but, uh, well, anyway, we'll, we'll show you, we'll tell you. It'll be a different kind of Friday show for us. All right, so we're going to finish this show with a fascinating story that will be impossible to compress uh, into the amount of time that we have. Uh, it is a story, as I said, going into this segment that involves uh, ancient papyri uh, and the search for earliest uh, iterations of the Gospels. It involves mummies and mummy masks. And here to tell us at least some of it is Ariel Sabar, uh, an award-winning journalist and author. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Smithsonian Magazine. His latest book is Veritas, a Harvard professor, a conman, and the Gospel of Jesus's wife. Welcome to our show, and thanks for doing this. Thanks very much for having me. So there's a lot in this story, and I think what we are going to uh, suggest that people do ultimately is read uh, the piece in the June 2020 print edition. It's also there online, The Case of the Phantom Papyrus, because there's just a lot of stuff that we're not going to be able to get to. But I think we could start with this idea that there is this incredible thirst, particularly among the evangelical community, particularly among uh very well-moneyed sectors of the evangelical community to find definitive or very early uh, uh, um, parchments or or, or iterations uh, of the Christian Gospels. And maybe you'd like to say a little bit more about that and how Hobby Lobby figures into all that. Sure. I mean, so I think, you know, it's not a surprise that um, among evangelical Christians, there is this belief that the Bible is um, inerrant, um, and it, that it's historically reliable, um, by which by which they mean essentially that the the first version of the Bible, and whether one can speak of a first iteration or an original Bible, is, is of course a question that scholars debate. But if there is a sort of first uh, iteration of the Bible, uh, or sorry, of the New Testament, I should say, um, you know, evangelicals believe that 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 version of it basically um, has persisted um, without error into the present, so that it's still the the the, the version of of the New Testament one reads uh, if one is a believer uh, in 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 churches today. And I think that speaks to to the belief among you know more conservative Christians that. Um, that the Bible is is God given, and that it's sort of it's, it's the Word of God, and so um, it matters a, a lot whether the earliest um, papyrus fragments containing passages from the New Testament uh, reflect the Bible that we read in churches today. Right. And the way that Ho- Hobby Lobby figures into that is, you know, Hobby Lobby um, is a very successful private corporation. Their arts and crafts uh, retail stores, I think there are nine hundred of them now, uh, from coast to coast. I think the last time I checked, they do something like $5 billion uh, in, in, in revenue every year. And they were founded by a family of, of Pentecostal Christians um, who have, I think, are at this point the largest uh, individual donors to evangelical ministries um, in the United States. Um, they give about half of their pre-tax earnings to evangelical ministries. And, and so um, they and they became interested in, in the Bible as a kind of historical text Um in, in his really big way, um, back in uh, around 2011, when uh, 2010, when they decided that they would establish a national um, Bible museum, um, and, and that's sort of how my, my story in the June issue of the Atlantic um, get, gets underway. 
Right. Well, by the way, we're going to post a link to that a link to that story on the show page for this episode too to make it easy for people to get it. But so, I mean, then the problem becomes, I mean, you've got a museum, you get the Bible Museum, uh you need artifacts for the Bible Museum. Um and artifacts don't uh, grow on trees. Nag Hammadi does not happen every day. Uh, a lot of the stuff that is out there is already part of major and important distinguished uh, collections that would be unlikely to part with it to just get it into the hands of the Hobby Lobby family so they can put it in their Bible museum. So you got to find somebody who's going to provide this stuff to you. And there's two people in particular who emerge in your article as people to whom the Greens and with their big project, their Bible museum project, turn sort of saying, yeah, can you get me anything? Can you get me some of this really old stuff that we're looking for? Who, who are those people? Well, so there, there are two people that, um, that they bring on um, fairly early to, to sort of help them acquire um, and, and essentially become the largest um, private collectors of um, biblical artifacts in the world. So we have, you know, Steve Green is the president uh, of Hobby Lobby. He founds um, the Bible Museum. And in the course of about four or five years, he amasses some 40,000 artifacts and he needs help to do that. And one of the people he turns to is a, um, a, a guy named Scott Carroll who is a sort of fashions himself. He's, he has a PhD in ancient history. He fashions himself um, this, this man who is able to travel to the farthest corners of the world to sort of summon these, these ancient texts from little, little known family collections across the world in all these sort of unusual ways. Um, and he's, he's been, Scott Carroll has been a collector to, to wealthy evangelical collectors in the past. So the Greens are not his first. And then at the, at the, the other person they turn to is uh, a world-renowned uh, Oxford classicist named Dirk Obink. And Dirk Obink is probably, you know, one of the number one, number two people uh, in the field of papyrology. And this is the sort of specialty that studies this ancient writing material known as papyrus, which was the writing material that predominates at the dawn of Christianity. And, and Dirk Obink is, is really at the top of his game. He's, he's a MacArthur uh, Genius Grant Award winner. Um, he is sought out by universities and cultural institutions around the world because he's this, he's he's sort of a he has he has this incredible eye for piecing together the way in which these small fragments of papyrus um, fit together, and and in sort of decoding um, their often cryptic um, text. Uh, in this case, his expertise is Greek, is the language, ancient language of uh, Greek. So. Um... And we're going to have to skip past some of this stuff just to uh, explain to people what this conversation is doing on a show, an episode about masks. So but I mean, it, it is worth noting that, as I was saying before, this kind of thing just doesn't pop out all that much. And so maybe you would need a way of uh, of. Um, finding serendipitously or appearing to find serendipitously early iterations of gospel texts. And one of the ways turns out to be this kind, this process uh, of, of decomposing mummy masks. Mummy masks, in other words, the face that you see on certain mummies, uh, the thing that's placed over the head is usually kind of an idealized image of, of the dead uh, as a resurrected being. It's kind of aspirational uh, in that sense and usually made of uh, something called cartonage. So, and it's this cartonage, right, that we're this idea of, oh, wow, maybe we're going to find really incredible ancient uh, literary artifacts in the cartonage. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this this meth, this this becomes the sort of the method that that, that Scott Carroll and, and in some ways that uh, Dirk Obink turned to, at least in, in public venues, to demonstrate how suddenly um, Hobby Lobby is come and, and its representatives are coming into 
you know, what is really kind of a gusher of, of, of new, um, new Testament manuscripts at a time, you know, as, as you sort of pointed out, um, in history when sort of the, the great age of exploration and papyrus discoveries is about 100 years behind us. So the, the mummy mask, what happens in these mummy mask de- demonstrations is that oftentimes Scott Carroll and sometimes Sir Gobink would take these mummy masks, um, plunge them into a sink full of water um, in which, uh, with palm olive soap, sort of um, massage it around underwater. And it's a really, if, and if you've seen videos of it, it's, it's really creepy sort of to watch because you see the kind of the mass kind of um, start to relax underwater and just go sort of slack. And then, um, you know, after sort of um, moving their hands around underneath the mummy masks, um, they are pulling out or claiming to pull out um, these um, ancient pieces, either of, of the New Testament um, or in some cases of um, really rare uh, uh, Greek poetry, like, like in the case of, uh, in one case, uh, 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 some fragments of poems by the, by the famous um, 6th century BC poet Sappho. So there are a bunch of reasons to feel that this process is iffy. I mean, one of them is there's some uh, other artifact related questions and conservatorial related questions about whether you should be taking 2000 or 2000 plus year old Egyptian artifacts and dumping them into sinks with palm olive just so you can maybe whip out, you know, somebody's shopping list from, from you know, uh, from the Nile. Um and there are also questions about whether or not it really makes any sense that, you know, portions of the Gospel of Mark uh, are likely to turn up in an Egyptian mummy mask. And, and one of the things that it turns out, I mean, there are, there's a little bit of amazing Kreskin stuff uh, going on here, right? Sometimes that little piece of parchment wasn't in the mask at all. It was sort of there by the sink being slipped in. Right, right. So I mean, what I discovered in the course of my reporting um, is that um, there were suspicions at some of these demonstrations about whether the amazing pieces of New Testament papyri and amazing pieces of classical literature that were being um, uh, extracted from these masks and these demonstrations actually were in the masks to begin with, or whether these demonstrations were in fact a way, um, as, as many scholars um, now suspect, uh, and, and as at least one source uh, conceded to me, uh, were a way in which uh, representatives um, of the Green Collection um, were essentially, uh, la- quite literally, and not, not just figuratively, not just figuratively, but literally laundering the provenance of papyri um, that came from sources that they, they'd rather not disclose. So it, it's much easier to have this sort of hocus pocus, where in which a tiny piece of the New Testament appears to have been pulled out of an ancient mummy mask, um, than to, to, to have to explain to people where you acquired. Um, this heretofore unseen um, piece of uh, of the gospel, and it turns out even historically, um, the, the 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 idea is implausible because while the Egyptians used papyri to make um, parts of the mummy mask for for many many years, um, that that practice is thought to have ceased before the Christian era. So so historically, we don't have any evidence aside from the few examples um, in, in in Hobby Lobby's case um, that have now proven. To, to have been something of a hoax um, of, of these New Testament fragments being extracted from the insides of, of ancient mummy masks. And just to underscore, I mean, there's a certain irony in all that, too, because 
uh, for evangelical Christians, the notion that the gospel writers were chronologically a little bit distant, a little bit later than the life uh, of Jesus himself, the notion that none of the gospel writers would really have any first-hand experiences of the kinds of things that are in the gospels is a source of some sensitivity. It's an idea they don't like that much for all the reasons you laid out at the beginning of our conversation. And the fact that in, in a very similar way, these mummy masks are chronologically, you know, they're, they're, it's the wrong time for anything that would have been part of the Gospels to appear. It almost kind of, you know, it, it does kind of underscore the thing they were most worried about. Well, you know, I think, you know, the, the, what, what you know, in the defense, Hobby Lobby's um, president has said, you know, that he was naive when he began collecting. He, he had a lot, he, you know, he had a lot of money to spend, but he trusted the wrong people. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, and, and Scott, you know, and, and they have sort of, there has been this sort of public uh, mea culpa in, in recent months. You know, some scholars are, are, are skeptical. They don't sort of want to let them off as easy all, uh, as all of that because, you know, they, they were, they did bring in experts early on who warned them that, you know, you can't just take what some dealer tells you um, as, as the truth, that you have to investigate provenance. You have to ask hard questions of dealers who want to bring you um, the very thing that you've always wanted to be true. And I think that's, you know, that's something that that um, I talk about a bit in my new book, Veritas, which is about a different um, case of a, of a seemingly religious papyrus. But when someone comes to you with the one manuscript that you as a scholar or you as an evangelical Christian have always wanted to be true, and it sort of obliges one to, to be particularly um, cautious um, and ask a lot of really hard questions, even though in your gut you you don't want to. Right. And, and, and not to be um, over peddling irony here, too. There's a way in which, you know, money is a very corrupting influence on this whole process. The fact that suddenly there's a lot of money available for this means that some of the players in this story, I mean, this guy Obink, he's a MacArthur Grant winner. He's a guy who pretty much could have written his own ticket in the field of scholarship. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and here he is doing this stuff that he probably never would have guessed that he would have done. But money kind of drives all that. So, you know, in Matthew 61, where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Jesus could have told you not to do stuff like this. Don't get all the money involved. Uh, and thanks so much uh, to you uh, for this, for, first of all, terrific article uh, and for appearing on our show. We have to unfortunately wrap up right now. I really encourage people to read the entire article. Uh, Ariel Sabar, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks to the rest of you for listening. Kat, take us out. So is love.